All right, well, again, uh, good morning, FBC family. Uh, excited, as always, to be here with you. Um, if you have a Bible uh, with you, let me invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2. Uh, today is week 8 of our study through this letter. Uh, I certainly know for me, uh, I've gotten so much out of this so far. I feel like I've been growing and being emboldened and strengthened in my faith, and I certainly hope the same has been true for you over the last two months together. Uh, and if you're new with us, uh, or newer uh, with us, uh, here's sort of the summary of Philippians. We know that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter from prison uh, to a church that he started in Philippi, which is uh, modern-day Greece. And the reason that Paul writes to them is to remind them of the supreme worth and incomparable beauty of Jesus Christ. He, he writes to them encouraging them to find their greatest joy in Jesus by telling them that to have Christ, to to be loved by Christ, to be forgiven by Christ, to to belong to Jesus's people, to know that we share in the promises of Christ is true gain. That in Christ, true and lasting joy is found. And it's in light of those realities that Paul calls the Philippians and us to live our lives in such a way that puts on display the incomparable and supreme worth of Jesus. That's Philippians. Well, today uh, we're going to work through chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And and what we're going to see is that one of the ways, one of the primary ways that we display the worth, the value, and the supremacy of Jesus in the everyday is by not grumbling and by not complaining. Today's message is actually so simple, uh, but at the same time extremely necessary, and at least personally I found it to be really challenging. Because Paul's words here are going to reveal to us that our words are not just uh, neutral pockets of air coming out of our mouth. That actually, our words reveal our hearts and what we most deeply believe about God himself, which is why Paul addresses grumbling so specifically. Now, like last week, I want to set the context for this passage just a little bit uh, so that we make sure that we understand the intention of this passage. So if you were, if you were here through the duration of the ser- uh, series or even just last week, uh, you remember at the beginning of this chapter, Paul has reflected, uh, he's brought us to, to, to teaching on the supremacy of Jesus, his glory, his love, and his beauty. And the way that he does that is by reminding the church of the incarnation of Jesus, the justification that's found in Jesus, and the exaltation of Jesus. Paul tells us the unbelievable news that God became flesh to seek and save the lost, that Jesus died our death on the cross for our sins, that he paid our debt that we couldn't pay in order to justify us, to declare us not guilty in the sight of God. And he tells us about Jesus' exaltation 
that Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, was given the name above every name, and all authority in heaven and on earth are now his. Paul wants us to know there is no one, no one like Jesus. And then last week, uh, we looked at verses 12 through 13, where Paul sort of transitions and says, therefore, he says, therefore, in light of the supreme worth of Jesus Christ, do what? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation as though we could earn it, but work out your salvation. He tells us to obey Jesus to live as if we are truly saved. And we summed it up this way, that we must pursue and follow Jesus as though it's all up to us. All the while trusting that our salvation, our transformation, is entirely up to him. So that's where Paul has taken us thus far. And then he continues, which is where we are today. Paul says this. He says, in light of who Jesus is, what he has done, all that he has made possible for you, available to you, and promises for you, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul says here in context, he says, work out your own salvation and do that with an attitude that does not grumble and does not complain. Now, Given the context here, uh, this must be really important. And so we're going to spend basically the rest of our time together this morning walking through this phrase. And let me just admit from the the very onset here, from the very, very beginning, that this message, uh, this sermon, this scripture, it's, it's tough to take in. One commentator said this, said that this verse is like a shock of cold water on a hot day. Um, I don't know if you've ever done that. When I was a little kid, I wasn't the best behaved all the time, but particularly my dad, the wintertime, we were in upstate New York, really cold. He'd be taking a hot shower, and um, I would sneak in there with like, there was 32 ounces with like ice cold water, with ice cubes, and I'd sneak in the shower and right over the top, whatever, and you'd scream, and I would laugh and run. And uh, yeah, anyway, like that. <laughs> you can kind of imagine that in your, head, in your head. It's a shock to our system. And so we need to talk about this. When Paul says, do all things, do all things, um, that in the Greek means all things, okay? <laughs> all things. I wish it didn't, but it does. Literally everything. All things. Working, studying, marriage, singleness, parenting, shopping, driving, talking, Suffering, social mediaing, all things. And grumbling, grumbling, it means complaining. It means to murmur, discontent, dissatisfaction, and griping. And not just, it's important, not just externally, but internally. Uh, That we don't necessarily have to be exercising grumbling out loud for grumbling to still be happening in our hearts. And then this other word, disputing, is there. And what's, what's that? Well, it's simple. It's just being critical. Or another word is being cynical. Okay? And so I believe Paul puts this here 
and why we need to address this sin is because, first of all, grumbling and complaining can actually be really contagious. It's like a virus. But not only that, when we are in that place, that place of grumbling, being critical, uh, you know this, there is little joy, little thankfulness, little contentment, and really there's little hope, which is certainly the opposite of what God desires of his people. And so that's why this is so important. Now, Paul has told us who Jesus is, what he has done, who we are, and what we are called to do. We are a new creation, children of God. We belong to the King. And those people, people who are in Christ, sons and daughters of God, servants of the King, he's basically telling us here, those people, they don't grumble, they don't complain. And I told you, again, I told you this is tough because think about all the things that we can or believe we rightfully should complain about, right? The list is endless, isn't it? Work, your coworkers, school, classmates, uh, traffic jams, slow drivers, fast drivers, drivers who don't use their directional signal, people who park terribly, okay, a lot more stuff about cars. You see where my potential grumbling comes from. Uh, your favorite sports team losing or both of them losing this morning before you have to preach? It happened. A home appliance, your phone, your computer, internet speed. It's too hot out. It's too cold out. Food's too spicy. Food's not spicy enough. The government, COVID restrictions, and that's just a sampling of my week, okay? And what's the common denominator of all of those things? Have you ever thought about this? Of our grumbling, of our complaining. I believe it's, it's pretty simple. The common denominator of our grumbling, complaining, it's, it's life not going our way. Life not going our way. Think about that. Think about all the things this week that you complained about or griped about. Um, I would venture to guess that in every one of those cases, it was because life was not going your way or the way you believed it should be going. Now, uh, you might have been right about what you're grumbling about. But the point is, life is not going your way. Uh, But why is this even a big deal? Why does it deserve the placement that Paul has given it here in the scriptures? I mean, of all the things that he could have mentioned, of all the things, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and do not do, he could have named so many things. He says, do not grumble, do not complain. Why this? And the reason is because our grumbling and our complaining is not merely, we think it is, but it is not merely a horizontal issue, but it's actually a deep-seated vertical issue. You see, God, since God, since God is sovereign and providential over all of life, meaning that he is in control, when we grumble about life, when we complain about life, Actually, the scriptures show us and tell us that we're ultimately grumbling about God himself. That when we complain, when we're cynical, when we're critical about life, 
we're ultimately complaining and being critical about God and how he has chosen to establish or allow life to happen. That in effect, we are rejecting God's will over our circumstances and revealing our lack of trust in him. That we are basically saying to God, I don't like the way that you're doing things. I don't like my circumstances. I don't like my relationships. I don't like my financial situation. I don't like my job. In fact, if I was God, I'd do it better. So our grumbling and complaining, they might seem surface level to us. A side comment here and that and there. But actually, they are not. That actually, they are indicators of what's really going on in our hearts. Bottom line here, our grumbling and complaining are ultimately worship issues. They are God issues. And to better understand that, we actually need to go back to the Old Testament. You see, the exact same words that Paul uses here in Philippians is used to describe the grumbling and complaining of Israel in the wilderness. And so I want to briefly take us through this story. What I want to do for us is, is sort of take the pressure off of us for a bit. We can laugh and roll our eyes at the Israelites for a few minutes, and then we're going to put the pressure back on us, okay? <laughs> All right, so you can breathe for a few minutes. So we know that God called one nation. Out of all the nations of the earth, they were a people set apart by God, blessed by God for the purpose of being a blessing to others. But at one point in their history, God's people, the Israelites, we know, unfortunately, they became slave to the Egyptians, which was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. This sadly lasts hundreds of years, 400, but eventually God powerfully rescues them. I encourage you to go back and read the narrative. You can read the story, but we know that God sort of famously, he parts the Red Sea, he destroys the Egyptian army, he frees his people, and then supernaturally leads them uh, by a cloud or, uh, during the day and by a pillar of fire at night. It's a very powerful story. Right? It's incredible. But here's what happens. As soon as the Israelites got out of Egypt, they, they, they crossed through dry land, the, you know, they're, they're free, what they do is they start to grumble and they start to complain. And, and it really never stops. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 15, this is crazy. This is just three days after the parting of the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness, but they can't find water. And so we're told that the people grumbled against Moses. And they're like, hey, what should we drink? There's nothing to drink. What are we going to do? Again, it's been three days since God delivered them, saved them. They start grumbling and complaining. But God is gracious and merciful, and so he provides water. He leads them to 12 streams of fresh water, actually. And then if you turn just to the next chapter, Exodus 16, it happens again. This time they're actually hungry. 
We read there that the people uh, grumble. They basically say, amazingly, they basically say, it would have been better for us to stay fed and die in Egypt than to be out here with you, Moses, than to be out here with you, Aaron, and die of hunger. And what is Moses' response to them? It's verse 8. It's verse 8. This is what it says, Exodus 16. The Lord has heard your grumbling. And listen, it's important. That you grumble against him. What are we? Isn't it interesting? Because they were actually, in, in the physical presence of Aaron and Moses, they were grumbling and complaining to Moses, against Moses, against Aaron. You've let us out here. You've done this. But Moses says, no, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now God, because he's God, continues to be faithful. He continues to provide. He feeds them. But the posture of their hearts doesn't change. Because we see in the very next chapter, Exodus 17, that they just continue to complain. It's ongoing. Or later in the book of Numbers, God brings them, we learn, that God brings them to the very edge of the promised land. They can see it across the way, to the land that he promised them and their forefathers to to have, to inherit. But there's a little bit of an issue. There are people dwelling in the land. It's a city full of people. And so the Israelites get together, they make a plan, they send two spies into the land to kind of scope things out and to see what's the situation like over there. Well, those two spies come back, they report what they saw, And the people, just the congregation, they just totally freak out. Because the people living in the land that they're supposed to have, they look really strong. And the city, it says, the city was fortified. Well fortified, meaning it was well guarded. And so what do they do? They freak out, and it's Numbers 14. They do what? They grumble again. They again go back to saying, It just, it just would have been better to die in Egypt. They say, why? Why did you? Why did you, Moses? Aaron, why did you? Why did God bring us here? Listen, they actually start to question and kind of have these side conversations with each other and ask each other, do you think we should go back to Egypt? And this time, God has had enough. He's had enough. He speaks to Moses and Aaron, and he says this in Numbers 14, verse 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? And he goes on to say, sadly, that these people will die in the wilderness. And that all who grumbled against him, grumbled against the Lord, none of them will enter into the promised land. Now, there's all kinds of questions that I believe come out of that, but I want us to stay on track here, okay? What what this is telling us is that complaining, griping, being cynical, grumbling, it's so serious. It's so serious that this was what prevented that generation, God's people, from going into the promised land. You thought about that? Isn't that crazy? It wasn't murder or stealing 
lying, right? anything like that. God says it's because of your grumbling. And you know what's sad, what's, what's tragic, what's, what's shocking, although it'd be, it'd be even more shocking if it wasn't a pattern of my own life, that right after this, they actually have the audacity to grumble again. People die, actually. And the next day, they wake up, and people come and complain and grumble again. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 16. It's unreal. So, so let's, let's review. God rescues his people from slavery, provides water and meat and bread and, and provision, shelter over and over and over again. And all along, all along, they should have been rejoicing, should have been trusting should have been content, should have been filled with gratitude and joy, and yet their testimony, we're reading about it to this very day, their testimony is that they grumbled. That's their reputation. That's how we think of the Israelites in the wilderness. They were a grumbling people. And what I want to highlight, again, is the severity with which God disciplined his people for grumbling, which tells us that, again, this was a very serious sin in the sight of the God. And let me say this as well, grumbling, okay, it's important, I think, to note this, grumbling was not invented by the Israelites, okay? We know that the first complainer was actually the first person. The first complainer was the first person, it was Adam. Remember, he disobeys God in the garden, takes the fruit, eats it, one thing he shouldn't do, he does that one thing, and so God comes to him and asks him, what happened? What happened, Adam? What, ha- what, 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 what took place here? And what does Adam say? He says, this woman you gave me did this. Adam was essentially saying to God, hey, look, I was minding my own business in the garden. You are the one who put me to sleep. You're the one who took my rib. Right? I, woke up, I just woke up, and, and you created this, this female here. You did that. I didn't ask for her. Right? You looked at me and said it wasn't good for me to be alone. You did this. Translation, it's your fault, God. You're the one responsible for this. And so let's understand grumbling and complaining against God. Grumbling and complaining against God is part of the human broken experience. That we are prone to do this. So as we're looking at the Old Testament narratives here, these are not just historical footnotes. That we read the, this, we, 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 we seek to understand, we listen, because we know that this is our story as well. That we complain. We grumble. Don't we? We grumble. I mean, as I was studying this passage, I had to study, I had to stop so many times because I was grumbling about this passage. (laughs) This who we are, which makes this passage in Philippians so important. I think we can all agree, right? We live, there's no denying this, we live in a culture of complainers. Honestly, just spend five minutes in the comment section of Facebook and Twitter. Just five minutes. We are pessimistic, never satisfied, Always looking, always looking and finding something to complain about, to grumble about. It's just our nature. All the while, all the while, especially those in our context, being some of the most rich, affluent, comfortable, 
and indulgent people to ever walk the face of this planet. It's ironic, isn't it? We are so, so comfortable and yet so discontent. And why is that? Well, because contentment is not a material or situational or circumstantial issue. Again, it's a spiritual issue. It's a worship issue. It's a God issue. And our, our grumbling and complaining actually reveals that issue. Now, I know some of you are like, well, wait a second. Okay, hold on. Uh, you see, here's the thing. When I'm saying things like that, when I speak in that tone, right, when I talk like that, I'm just being honest. I'm being real. That's the thing in our day and age, right? I'm being real. I'm being authentic. I'm just expressing my feelings. Right? Are you telling me, Pastor James, are you telling me not to be authentic, not to be real? And, and let's be really honest for a second. Can we? Let's be honest. Aren't most of the time those words, like authentic, real, right, authenticity, right, aren't they just really code words for our complaining and grumbling and just saying whatever we want to say? I think often they are. I mean, you can almost imagine. Can you imagine the Israelites saying this to Moses? Like, hey, come on, Moses. I'm just being honest. I'm just being real. I'm just being authentic with you. You're a bad leader, and God doesn't know what he's doing with us. Just being authentic. And just to be clear, right, I'm not a hater, right, on authenticity and honesty. Of course not, right? We should rejoice in those things. But we shouldn't use those terms to dismiss or to hide or try to cover up our sin. That's the point. Some of us believe, actually, some of us believe that we have the God-given gift of criticism. Let me just tell you, you don't, okay? There's no such thing. You don't have the God-given gift of criticism. No such thing. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11 says this, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. And then you'll say to me, because some of you are critical thinkers, you'll say, well, what about constructive criticism? Or saying things when things are wrong. Should we not seek to change things? Or should we not seek change when things aren't going well? And to that question, of course not. Of course not, we should. But this is all about how we go about doing that. Do we go about this with sincerity and humility? Or do we approach that change with with grumbling and complaining. That's the point. So listen, there's a a beautiful and gracious and patient way to seek change and to address wrong. And on the other side, there's a grumbling and a muttering and a complaining way. And we all know that. And so it's all about the posture and position of our hearts. You know, I was trying to think a little bit more deeply about this, and I think we, at least for me, and maybe this is true for you, I think, you know, we grumble and complain so much in part because it feels so reassuring to us, reassuring to our flesh, that, that when we grumble and complain, it makes us feel like we're okay, uh, and, and that it's really my situation that's the problem. It's really the world that's the problem. It's really other people that are the problem. And you know what? 
that just really reveals oftentimes that it's our problem. And more than we realize, our sense of self and our sense of stability is not grounded in our gracious and good God, but again in things going our way, which is why we freak out so much when they don't and why we grumble and why we are so quick to complain. Now, all of this, of course, raises the question, so then, okay, we're not supposed to do that, so then how do we live? What's the alternative? And the Bible, of course, is so helpful for us in that. In in Paul's letters uh, to the, the church at Corinth, specifically his first letter that we have, he says in the great famous love chapter, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says this, they're familiar words to you, I'm sure you've heard them before. He says, love bears all things, It believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And now what I want to do, I want you to think about this, compare that to grumbling. Grumbling, it it bears few things. Our complaining believes few things, hopes few things, and endures few things. And so I would argue that the opposite of grumbling is actually love. And that love produces patience and hope and endurance. Grumbling in us says, grumbling in us, the complainer in us says, I cannot believe this. Or this will never work out. This is never going to end. Or I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she said that. Did you hear what they said? Or this always happens to me. Or, oh, just my life. My life, always, it's my life, right? But love says, love says, my God is with me. Anything is possible. My God is with me. Things will work out. My God is for me, for me. He has a plan and a purpose for me. I know where I'm headed in the ultimate end. Listen, the grumbler, the grumbler focus on what is wrong with the circumstances, but the child of God focuses on the author of the circumstances. That's the difference. The grumbler, the complainer, they focus on what's wrong with their situation or the world around them. But the child of God focuses on the author of all situations, of all circumstances. Some of you, like me, if you're like me, you're like, well, listen, I'm just being a realist. I say that a lot. I'm pretty black and white. That's my personality. But look, and I'm I'm speaking to myself, I want to invite you this morning, I want to invite you out of that. I want to invite you out of that. This isn't just empty, naive optimism that we're talking about here. This is hope that is rooted and anchored and sourced in the author of hope himself, Jesus Christ. So, like, is is the world bad and and broken? Of course, (laughs) of course. And, and you should discern that. Don't ignore or miss what's wrong in the world. I encourage you to see the brokenness and the pains of this life. But even more than that, above all that, see God at work amidst all of those things. Be hope-filled because we believe and we know that God sovereignly rules over all. And that means he's in control. And I think we know this. I think we all know it takes no faith, no faith, no trusting in Jesus to be critical and to be cynical. 
That's the flesh. That only the Spirit of God working in us can help us to love and help us to hope like this. Which, is, by the way, is really good news because remember from last week, it is God who is working in you. Right? He's working in you. So look, don't, don't dismiss God's word to you today. Don't dismiss what the Holy Spirit might be trying to, to say to you today by thinking, well, look, by thinking this, so look, I'm, I'm just really not like this. It's just not me. That's not my personality type. That's not my Myers-Briggs. That doesn't fit my Enneagram profile score. Right? By the way, God knows that. He knows who you are. And the point is, you're not like that. I'm not like that, which is why he filled you with the Holy Spirit and he tells you to work out your salvation. So, so we work out our salvation. We work out our salvation. We don't grumble. We don't complain. But rather, we love, we hope, we trust God. And Paul gives us further reasoning for not grumbling. He gives us actually the effect of our, of our not grumbling, our not complaining. It's in verse 15. He says this, that you may, so he says, do not, in all things, don't grumble, don't complain, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So when we, so when we work out our salvation, when we live as we should, obeying Jesus, when we don't grumble and complain, we actually, Paul says, we stand out as Jesus' people. And these words, blameless and innocent, without blemish, they all basically mean, this, mean the same thing, that innocent and pure before God and before others. So Paul is saying here, in light of the purity, in light of the righteousness that is yours, that is found in Jesus Christ, he's saying, work that out. Make that a reality so that, so that you shine, he says, like lights in the world. He's saying that our lives individually, but especially, remember the context, he's talking to a local church. He's saying, but especially corporately, our lives should stand out like a beacon, a beacon in the dead of the night. And, and we should know this as well. We should know this as well in terms of being a shining light and, you know, you've heard, you know I'm a candle and don't blow it out, all that. You know, you've heard this. Be a light. That this shining here, let's make sure we have a clear picture of what this means. This shining here is more like the moon reflecting the sun. The moon, we know, the moon is, is dead and lifeless. But when the sun, when the light of the sun strikes it, it comes to life, doesn't it? And that's like us with Jesus. That apart from him, we are spiritually dead without help without hope in the world. But when his light, when the light of Jesus Christ touches our souls, we come to life. We shine. We reflect, actually, his light, his goodness, his glory, his beauty. That's why we can say that we're lights in the world, because his light has shined upon us. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 16. Jesus says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
You see the reflection component there? You see our work, our work? He's saying letting our light shine is ultimately a reflection of the glory of the Father who is in heaven. And so don't miss that. Don't miss this. Together, together, we are meant to be a prophetic presence in our city, a beacon of light in our city. Did you know that? That that together, collectively, corporately, we are meant to reflect God's goodness, his love, his grace, his mercy, his peace, his joy. That as lights, we are meant to point people to the light. It's not about us and our light. It's about him and his light. That in the midst of a world, a broken world that's lost its way, a world that is living for themselves, living opposite of how God designed them to be, which is, by the way, why he calls them crooked and twisted. Amidst all this darkness, Jesus' people are to shine like imperfect lights in the world and in our city. How? How do we do that? Paul's told us, by working out what God has worked in without grumbling or complaining in our everyday lives. So this means our words, our work, our successes, our failures, our attitudes, how we approach everything in life, all that life throws at us, everything Our attitude and posture of our hearts in that should be distinguishable, drastically different from the world, like light in the darkness. How we handle loss, financial hardship, traffic jams, long lines at Costco, right? And everything else, everything in between that comes our way on any given day. We handle it all with trust and hope and confidence, knowing that God, our King, is the author of life and the author of our situation and our circumstances. I mean, seriously, seriously. Imagine, just imagine with me, just for a second. Imagine if we did all things all things without grumbling and complaining. Could you even imagine it? Imagine, imagine the culture of this local church in Seoul, what it would be like. Imagine the schools that we're, we're teaching at or that we're a student at, the, the hagwans, the academies in Korea. Imagine the, the barista, the coffee shops in Seoul. What if all Christians, all Christians made a decision to to follow God's word and they did like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram without grumbling and complaining? Could you imagine? Do you think that that would change anything? I do. And I honestly believe that Paul believed that too. That when we don't grumble and complain, we actually stand out in the world We shine. We reflect the very character of God. We'll keep going. Verse 16. He says this next. 
Paul says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I not run in vain or labor in vain. Very quickly, what Paul essentially says here is to be a light, to be a light, to be this beacon of hope, to shine. He says, we must hold fast, hold tightly, firmly, he says, to God's word. That we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and his word. That we have to fix our gaze on the gospel. We have to stay close to it, to not leave it. Why? Why? Because it's where we learn about the things of God, where we learn about ourselves, where we learn about the gospel, because it's where we learn about our purpose, where we learn about our vision, where we learn about our mission, that we hold fast to the word, meaning that we actually apply the truths of the word to our lives. And then Paul finishes this section with some, just some incredibly strong words. He says this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now think about this for just a second. If anyone, anyone had reason to complain, it would have been Paul, right? He was arrested wrongly in Jerusalem. He spent years and years of his life in prison after he made a decision to follow Jesus. He was beaten, abused, slandered. If anyone anyone had a reason to grumble and to gripe and to complain, it was Paul. Right now even, he, he understands, he's basically saying, he's facing death. He's like, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, otherwise, I'm sacrificing my life. My life is about to be sacrificed. I'm about to die for my faith. He's facing death, yet what does he say? He says, I gladly pour out my life for you. Not so that you think I'm great. Not so that you think I'm extraordinary or special, but so that you know how great Jesus is and how powerful and transformative his gospel is. And then he ends by inviting them into this rejoicing with him. He says, I know your struggle I know your pain. I know your suffering because I'm there with you too. So how about rejoicing together? Let's do it together. That's what he says. And of course, these words here, they don't make any sense. This is nonsense in the eyes of the world. Nonsense, these words. But Paul, but Paul knew Jesus and he knew the gospel And that changed everything for him. He knew, he knew that in Jesus, our sin was traded for Christ's perfect righteousness so that we can be in and have a relationship with God. He knew that in Jesus, we are filled with the spirit of God as a guarantee for the life to come, the kingdom to come. He knew that in Jesus we are adopted into the family of God with God as our perfect father. 
He knew that in Jesus, we have everything we need to live and to glorify God. He knew that in Jesus, there is hope, there is love, there is joy forevermore. He knew that in Jesus, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No circumstance, no trial, no disappointment, nothing. And listen, when you know all of those things to be true, it's hard. It's hard to grumble, isn't it? It should be. Listen, grumbling, grumbling and complaining comes out of a heart that does not trust God. It comes out of a heart that doesn't believe that God is in control, that doesn't believe that God is good, that doesn't believe that God knows what's best. So instead of gossip, let's move to prayer. Instead of revenge, let's move to kindness. Instead of pride, let's move to humility. Instead of bitterness, let's move to forgiveness. Instead of grumbling, let's move to love. Instead of complaining, let's move to joy. That in light of who God is, in light of who God is, let's make the conscious, willful decision to trust him and to choose to be joyful. By his spirit, let's choose to be thankful in light of all his goodness and the amazing realities of the gospel. Let's be a light. Let's not grumble. Let's not complain. But instead, choose to have hope. Let me pray for you.